Hey, this is Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written 35 some odd, I don't even know who can count, cookbooks, and this is our magazine-formatted podcast in which we talk about all things related to food, have great interviews, talk about what's making us happy this week, have one-minute cooking tips with the whole bit, and so our first segment up is we want to introduce our brand new cookbook. We have a book going on sale in a couple of weeks. It'll be out November of 2021. And it is the fourth in our Instant Pot Bible oh series gosh. called Instant Pot Bible Copycat Recipes. Right. It is a book of how to make restaurant favorites in an Instant Pot. Now, let me say first off that no restaurant that I know of uses an Instant Pot. It is a form, if you don't know, good grief, where have you been? Under what rock do you live? It is a form of electric pressure cooker, countertop electric pressure cooker. It is incredibly popular. There are many electric countertop pressure cookers out on the market the instant pot is a brand and notice i said instant pot not instapot it's instant pot anyway go on i want to say that also no restaurants were harmed in the making of this book <laughs> no they were not <laughs> so we decided that we wanted to try to recreate a bunch of favorites from applebee's to olive garden even some high-end places like tadich's grill in san francisco we wanted to take all kinds of restaurants and try to recreate dishes in the instant pot now Again, this is not exactly how the restaurant can make it because, after all, it doesn't exactly work this way in an electric pressure no, cooker. Very in a restaurant. few restaurants are cooking in pressure cookers exactly. and they're not cooking their pasta directly in the sauces the way we do. Right. And a lot of things in restaurants are actually fried and we couldn't. So we were trying to recreate the essence of the dish, the flavor, the way it looked. So we, you know, we had to figure out first of all, how did we taste all these, right? Because we have to know what they taste like. And we had a problem, it was called COVID. <laughs> It was called COVID. What it involved is a lot of ordering in and going to restaurants and sitting in our car and eating. It involves out front. Let me tell you, you get a strange look when you order five entrees. You pick them up and you take them out to your car sitting right from the restaurant. And you eat them all <laughs> sitting right in your car. Because <laughs> you want to eat them while they're hot. You do get strange looks from the people inside. We were trying out various things. We wanted to figure it out. Some things are pretty, there are well-known ingredients. For example, I think most people know that Cracker Barrel's meatloaf has Ritz crackers crushed up in it. Mm -hmm. So we knew that that was part of the secret of making that meatloaf. There are other things that are a little bit funkier that we didn't know. So not only did we have to taste and try these things, but thank goodness for modern food labeling because... Restaurants now have to list what are in their dishes in either online sources or sometimes, depending on the state rules, in the restaurant itself. Yeah. They have to provide a sheet of ingredients. So we could actually kind of figure out what the ingredients are. And it's funny. I should also say one more thing. Bruce is wanting to say something, mm -hmm. but I say one more thing. And that is that there's some mythology out there about what's in certain things that's not true. And we did this through researching the restaurants themselves. For example, let me give you an example to this. There is a mythology about Cracker Barrel meatloaf that not only does it include Ritz crackers, but it also includes cocoa. It does not. It does not include cocoa unless they're slipping it in under the law and not listing it on the ingredient list. And since that's a 
highly <laughs> allergic ingredient. I don't think they'd be doing that. No, I don't think so either. There's some mythology that runs around the internet. I know it's hard to believe that everything on the internet that you read is not true, but there is some mythology about dishes in restaurants. So we had to kind of ferret all that out and figure out how a dish was made. And then Bruce had to go away and try to adopt that and instant pot. Thank goodness for Instagram and for Yelp because mm. – People take pictures of everything they eat mm. and they post it all over social media. Mm. So it's one thing for me to have a styrofoam container mm -hmm. of a pasta dish, mm -hmm. but that's not necessarily going to tell me what it looks like on the plate. Yeah. And since we're photographing so many of these dishes, we photographed a third of the recipes in the book. I'm more than a third. I needed to know what they looked like. So by going on Instagram and Yelp, I get to see a hundred versions of how the different restaurants played at each dish. Yeah, for example, there is a pot roast from the chain Perkins. And on the Perkins website, you can see the dish as Perkins makes it. And we should say that we are not offering Perkins recipe for this, where we're offering our Instant Pot version of this. And you can see the dish as Perkins makes it. Okay, and that's in their photography on their website. But going out to Yelp and looking at the dish in people's Yelp feeds and in people's reviews, we could see that the sauce that is actually on the dish in the restaurant is quite about quite a bit thinner than the sauce in the picture on the Perkins official website. Yeah, because they want it to look like it's clinging to the meat and it's thick and that's lovely, but in reality, that's not what you're getting. And you would be disappointed if you eat there and then you make our version and it's not even close. And it's so we thick had, and gloppy. Yeah, so we had to pay attention to that kind of stuff and it was really, really important. Yeah, and along the way, we didn't intend this. This was not our intention in copycatting, but it occurred to us along the way that a lot of these places are big chains, Chili's, Applebee's, BJ's Brewhouse. I don't know. A lot of these places are really big chains. And, you know, the way chains work is that food is produced in a facility somewhere. It's generally frozen and then sent off to the various locations of the chain. That usually also involves a great many preservatives and additives in order to, what, to help the food survive transport. And we could recreate dishes in the Instant Pot without such a great chemical signature on them. Not only that, but a lot of our favorite foods are deep fried. Mm. And the thing is, they're delicious. And I'm not saying there's anything against deep fried food. I love it. But you can't deep fry in an Instant Pot. So, no. for instance, we did a lot of dishes from P.F. Chang's. And a lot of those dishes are deep fried first and then sauteed. So we had to figure out how to create just the essence of that dish and the right flavors and the right ingredients without deep frying it first and without disappointing people. So as Mark says, not only do we have less chemicals, we're doing less frying. And so a lot of these things are healthier than the original. And we decided also to include a whole host of recipes in the book from up-end restaurants like Melting Pot, like Tadich's Grill, as I said, like Antoine's in New Orleans. We decided to include recipes there that we were copycatting. You not, not you know, your, your chain restaurants, but more up-end dining experiences. And so I shouldn't say a whole lot. There's a handful of those in the book. We just had a lot of fun copycatting and trying to figure out in the middle of COVID how we could reproduce restaurant favorites in an instant pot. And the results, I think, are pretty good. We we worked really hard on the photography. We worked really hard on the recipes. Lots of things, I think, more so in this book than almost any book we've written recently. Things had to be tested and retested and retested and retested because they weren't quite right and they weren't quite the way it was in the restaurant. And, and that's interesting because sometimes I'd make something and I'd be like, oh, this is better. And Mark would say to me, yeah, it is better, but it's not the way it was in the restaurant. <laughs> 
Or I'd make something, right. I'd go, oh, this, you know what would make this better? Mushrooms. He goes, okay, we're not writing our own recipes. We're right. recreating someone right. else's. So, yes, to try and match exactly what the recipes are doing was a lot of hard work. But the book is beautiful. The photographer that was on our podcast a few weeks ago, Eric Metzger, he shot this for us again, just like he's done other books. And it's really a beautiful book. It is. So get yourself an Instant Pot. Get yourself the book, Instant Pot Copycat Recipes. Figure out how to make your restaurant favorites healthier and maybe better, dare I say better, at home. Okay, segment two, our one-minute cooking tip. What's up? Use your ice cube trays for more than just ice. <laughs> wait, wait, okay, stop. Who has ice cube trays? Well, buy ice cube trays <laughs> and use them for something other than ice. Like, they're great for little cubes of leftover broth when you need them. You can make iced tea or iced coffee in cubes that won't water down those drinks. You have some buttermilk before it goes bad and you're going to throw it out, make little cubes. You have it for cooking. Wine. You left it a little bit of wine. Don't throw it out. Put it in the ice cube trays and freeze it. But please don't drink it. Yeah, Just use it for cooking. It's non-drinkable now. but it, Well, it's drinkable, ugh. but you don't want to. But it's for cooking. Now, I've made fun of Bruce, but so go out and buy an ice cube tray. You'll have to find them wherever your grandmother shops. And then you can do all this kind of crazy stuff. When I make homemade stock in an Instant Pot, in fact, I freeze it in half cup or one cup containers to keep it, you know, for as long as you need. Listen, it's uh, even a half a cup of homemade stock added to a dish makes all the difference in the world. But there's always leftovers, and I can pour that leftover little bits of stock into ice cube trays, and then you have an ice cube of stock. It's really a great tip. Go out where your grandmother shops and get an ice cube tray. Before we get to segment three, I want to remind everyone, please subscribe to this podcast and go out to Facebook. Join our group cooking with Bruce and Mark. We have a lot of fun. We share recipes and photos. So subscribe and come to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. So up next in the interview segment of this episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark, Bruce's interview with Kim Reed, the author of the new book, Workhorse, a tell-all about her days working with restaurateur Joe Bastianich. Oh, this should be good gossip. Today, I'm talking to Kim Reed, author of Workhorse, My Sublime and Absurd Years in New York City's Restaurant Scene. Hey, Kim, welcome. So great to be here. Thank you for having me. So your new memoir is out in November, and it's a coming-of-age story, finding your identity, all set in the world of Food Network celebrities and the New York foodie scene. And you write about being a social worker first. That's what you went to school for, and you worked for the homebound elderly in Brooklyn. That's a far cry from Food Network celebrities. It is. So what led you to that fast-paced, celebrity-fueled food scene at Mario Batali's restaurant Babo in New York? It was actually kind of by accident. Uh, the NYU School of Social Work, which is where I got my master's degree, was around the corner or is still around the corner from Babo. And um, at the time, I was working um, a work-study job that the university had given me. I think I was making like $6.90 an hour. Um, and a friend of mine who was also in the social work program said that she had just gotten a job at a restaurant. The chef was on the Food Network. And... Gwyneth Paltrow and Luke Wilson used to go in there for dinner, which of course I was like, oh, I have to check this place out. But the kicker was she said that they made $11 an hour. And I just thought this is what I need to be making to live in New York City. So I went in with my resume and uh, and I ended up staying for 
10 years part-time at Babo. And what were you doing in the beginning at Babo? So I went in as a hostess. And after a couple of years of hostessing, which is the seven-hour shift of running up and down several flights of stairs in probably the hottest restaurant to get into from the time it opened in 98 until the crash of 2008. So I actually only did that for a couple of years. And then I just felt I was getting too old for that after eight hours of, of social work on my feet all day. And I switched to just doing reservation work. So we would be manning the phone lines, which was also pretty, you know, could be a blood sport at time. Before I started at Babo, I actually um, work on the domestic violence hotline out of a domestic violence shelter. It was part of my training for social work. So, you know, the phones at Babo didn't really scare me because I was used to a lot of anxiety and and much worse situations, honestly. Um, But a lot of people really couldn't handle that job. We went through a lot of reservationists. So over the years, I ended up getting it staffed with... um, fellow social workers, friends who are getting their doctorates in psychology. And we found that, you know, mental health professionals were the best ones for that job. Absolutely fascinating. I love that idea that you need to be a mental health professional to work in a high-end restaurant. So I get the attraction of the celebrities coming in. And that would really make going to go there. And of course, $11 an hour sounds really nice at the time. What other perks did you have of working there? You know, social work was really tough. And as much as I loved my clients and I loved hearing their stories, and I think that's really what drew me to social work. You know, everybody has a story. And I just found that I'm an empathetic person. I could really, really get into someone's problem and and really help them. But, um, you know, it, it could be pretty depressing. I worked with the elderly and a lot of our clients were, you know, close to or if not quite the end of their lives. So to be a young person and to spend your days around death and around, you know, the loss of your mobility, the loss of your friends and loneliness to then stop and jump into the hottest restaurant, what I thought, what I really think arguably you could say was the hottest restaurant in New York City that people all over the world were clamoring to get into as much as it was crazy and it was probably too much. It was a nice change from from during the day. So that was a perk, just getting to play a small role in that, mm. that sort of glamour. So you were working at Babo when the whole Mario Batali sexual harassment scandal broke. What was it like working in that environment? It was really hard. You know, I, I'd like to say that I believe the women 100% who are so brave to come forward. I guess that was unexpected once that unraveled that was particularly disappointing was really the reaction of a lot of people around me. Um, people were very quick to, you know, come to the defense of him and of the company, people who I really wouldn't expect to. Um, and this is even after there was an admission of, of wrongdoing. So, but I was really shocked by the level of defensiveness that immediately came up. And I'm not, I'm not talking necessarily about people in the company, somewhere in the company, somewhere just in the orbit, and you know, in the restaurant industry in general, and some were just people that I knew from other areas of my life. But that was to me probably one of the most hardest things to swallow and trying to keep your composure when you're having conversations with these people and not fly off the handle. So it wasn't just Mario Batali, of course, Joe Bastianich was a co-owner of Babo. And he's the person that you sort of bonded with on a professional level. Um, He hired you as his personal assistant, just as his team was opening Italy in New York. And while he was filming MasterChef here and in Italy. So he had a crazy life. You jumped into it. 
Seems glamorous, decent food, summers in Milan. That's got to take a toll on your personal life. How did it affect you? It definitely did. And that, that's really the crux of the book. I mean, the book itself is really a story of, of self-growth. But, you know, there was already a restaurant empire and there were wineries. And Italy in and of itself was just a huge, huge undertaking that, that we were really involved in. You know, again, coming from the background in social work, which at that point, I think, I had been a social worker for nine years, almost 10 years, and had been working two jobs at that point. So I was really, really desperate for a different environment and really wanted to experience, I guess, more of the perks that I I saw in the restaurant industry. Um, I really take everyone on the full trajectory, which is being extremely excited to start. And, and Joe was very different at Babo than he was in the office. Um, so that, that chapter is pretty interesting. He was quite mild at Babo, very friendly, very quiet. And in the office, very demanding, very tough. He was much more that, you know, fast moving entrepreneur, what's next, get it done, make it happen, you know, cut you off when you're speaking type of thing. Fast forward eight and a half years. And as much as I had some great experiences, I think that, you know, for me, I became a bit of a workaholic and, and I became very, you know, addicted to the indispensability. Joe really depended on me. He had so many things going on. He was on set half the time. So I really ended up doing a lot of things that probably if it hadn't been for the TV shows, he would have done, you know, having access to all of those things and having that kind of power was a bit, was a bit addicting, always being in the middle of the fray. But the toll is that you, you don't, really have much of a personal life and you don't really build the things that, as I found out, as the years went by, really, really matter. So there are people who can, you know, find a happy medium. And for a long time, I was not one of them. So after years of doing that, of making the impossible happen for everyone around you, how did you go about making the transition to make things happen for you to give you satisfaction outside of just making things happen for everyone else? You know, I realized that if I can do this for someone else, I can absolutely do it for myself. You know, what I really mean by, you know, make the impossible possible is, you know, doing what might feel impossible to you. And I think that we all have these limiting beliefs that we pick up, you know, God knows where a society when we're kids and we don't really get rid of them. And when you work with probably every entrepreneur that I've worked with or every entrepreneur that I've known peripherally, they don't have as many limiting beliefs I find. They tend to think that the world is open to them and they tend to, to really go after what they wanna do. So I think that being in that kind of environment was, was very helpful. Um, I think that I was a bit closed-minded in terms of what I would be capable of and what my future held. So I think in that way, it was very good for me to really see that and to be a part of that. So I find it really fascinating that we've talked about you're working in one of the hottest restaurants in New York. You've worked for the biggest celebrities on Food Network and the guys that started Italy. We haven't mentioned food once. So was food actually not a big part of your job? It's actually, there's not a ton of food in the memoir. It's really more about the scene, the people, the vibe, the feeling itself. To some extent, I kind of carried social work over to that. It was really about the people, the people that I met, whether it was the guests or just, you know, Joe had his hand in so many different things. We met new people every single day from all walks of life, different countries. And for me, that's what really, I think, attracted me most to that. So what's Kim Reed doing now? I am actually working in finance. You know, I, I've kind of come full circle in terms of 
learning what's best for me and not wanting to make the same mistakes that, you know, readers will read about in the book. As fun as it was at times to make those mistakes, um, I've really learned to put myself first and um, not limit myself, but also really establish better boundaries, especially better boundaries with work, you know, not living and dying for a job and really taking time out for yourself. And I mean, it sounds trite, but it's so true. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if you really work your life away for somebody else's endeavor, that could end at a, at a moment. I think there's one line in the book I say where all I had built is rented. And it's true. It's not mine. Um, so I've, I've learned you can still work very hard for someone and you can still do a good job for someone and still take care of yourself. So well, one final question, COVID notwithstanding, can you still get a table wherever you want in New York? Oh, geez. Probably not wherever I want, but I do still have a lot of contacts in the food world. So, yeah. And it's actually, it's been really nice to see people that started with me as, as hostesses or as line cooks and now own their own restaurants um, or own their own, you know, companies related to the restaurant industry. So it's nice to see everybody's hard work and have them come up. So most places I'd say not, not all some are, some are really tough. Hey, Kim Reed, thank you for speaking with us today. Kim Reed is the author of Workhorse, My Sublime and Absurd Years in New York City's Restaurant Scene out in November. Take care and thanks for being here. Thank you. Okay, see, this confirms my suspicion that I never want to work in a restaurant ever. <laughs> For no reason. Please don't make me work in a restaurant. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fragile, I'm a fa frail flower that I would wilt in a restaurant for sure. Oh my gosh, wow. That's kind of amazing. Okay, so up next, what's making us happy in food this week? What is making you happy in food this week? Chestnuts. Ch mm. Chestnuts. Our local, okay. our local farm market, Freund's on Route 44 in Canaan, their chestnuts are falling off their trees mm. and they're selling them in giant barrels in the mm. farm store. And I love them. I just score the skin on the top. I make an X on the top and I roast them in a 350 degree oven for about 25 minutes. And I love chestnuts. We do. We sit down. Bruce and I only watch TV in binge form at this point. And we'll sit down binging something. You know, like we're not watching Succession right now because, of course, we're going to wait for the whole season to drop. And then we'll watch it all in like two wine-induced nights. And Bruce will make chestnuts. And we'll sit there eating chestnuts and binging Succession or whatever we're currently binging. Um, may I recommend Scenes from a Marriage on HBO? <laughs> binging whatever it is that we're binging at the moment. Not if you're a depressive type. Oh, my gosh. And. Uh, chestnuts are just a wonderful thing because they're so, to me as a southerner, they're so outside of anything I ever had as a kid. They're sweet, they're nutty, they're creamy, they're rich. It's just an amazing thing to have hot chestnuts. So what's making you happy in food this week, Mark? I got to eat in a restaurant. <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> I Bruce got to eat with you. <laughs> you did. Bruce and I have been very careful during COVID. We made our choices. You can make the choices you need to make. We made our choices and yes, we ate a lot of takeout for the copycat book. We've taken out pizza a few times, but we actually went into New York City and went to dinner in a restaurant and saw a show in the theater. And it was kind of insane. This is the first time we've done this in a year and 10 months, maybe? I don't know, long time. And it was... So nice to walk in the restaurant. So nice to sit there and have dinner. So nice to get up and go to the theater. It just, wow, it reminded me of my old life. So I got to eat in a restaurant. 
Well, I will say that the restaurants in New York were asking for our vaccination cards and photo ID. To they were, and we had that to give them. But it was just wild to sit there in a restaurant, order a couple dishes. We had a nice octopus dish. Order a couple dishes and, you know, have dinner out, have a couple glasses of wine, go to the theater. It's, it's it was... a terrible show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was another matter. Um, and then, you know, be like, wow, how it used to be. That was really great. So that's our show this week, all about copycat recipes, using ice cube trays. We had Kim <laughs> Reed, restaurants, chestnuts. What more could you want? Well, what I could want is ask you to please subscribe to this podcast uh, wherever you get your podcasts from and give us a rating. Drop down to wherever it asks for ratings, wherever you get your podcast. Give us five stars. Tell us you love us. And <laughs> come back for another episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. <laughs>